shipping under attack in the Red Sea, a new container shipping alliance, and the return of Gary Howard. Hi, it's Marcus, editor of Sea Trader Maritime News here, with our January news roundup, Maritime in Minutes. And I'm pleased to say that our correspondent Gary Howard is back to co-host after a short visit to the dark side. Gary, welcome back. <laughs> Thanks, Marcus. That's right. I'm back for our regular reflection on the world of maritime news, where Marcus and I send each other messages saying things like, oh, quite a lot happened this month, didn't it? <laughs> Great to be back on the podcast, and I'm looking forward to sharing a few stories. Yeah, indeed. And quite a lot has happened in the last month. And we're going to be taking a look back at some of those sort of top stories and some of those most topical ones that have appeared on Sea Trade Maritime News in January 2024. There's a lot to get through, so Gary, why don't you kick us off? Starting with a topic that runs throughout the whole month of January, Maersk announced on the first working day of 2024 here in the UK that it was extending a 48-hour pause of transits of the Red Sea in response to an attack on one of its vessels on December 30th. Some Maersk ships will be taking the Cape of Good Hope until further notice as it keeps an eye on risks in the Red Sea amid the ongoing attacks there on merchant shipping by Houthi rebels in Yemen. I expect Maersk will not be in a rush to return to the Red Sea. This attack on December 30th came just a few days after Maersk actually resumed operating in the region, after a previous transit pause was put in place owing to an attack on a different vessel earlier in December. The timing suggests that Maersk could return to the Red Sea expecting the new International Naval Coalition, uh, Operation Prosperity Guardian, would deter those Houthi attacks, but we since have come to learn that that has not been the case. We won't be picking up on every Red Sea event, every story throughout this episode, as there have been many, but we have coverage from um, the Sea Trade Maritime team across the world on our dedicated Red Sea Crisis page. If you're looking for more information on the Red Sea Crisis and its impact on various parts of the industry, take a look there. Over to you, Marcus. Yeah, definitely do that. And as you say, we could actually dedicate the entire episode to the Red Sea, but there have been plenty of other things going on as well, so we be featuring some of those. Now, for the first week of January, I've chosen a somewhat left-field story, actually. As a part of this job, I subscribe to a huge number of alerts and so forth, and one catching my eye one morning was a pilot advisory notice from the Australian Maritime Safety Authority, and it was on fake pilot ladders. Yes, you heard me correctly, as well as the likes of copy watches and fake designer handbags, there are also counterfeit pilot ladders out there. Now. Pilot ladder safety has rightly been more in focus in recent years, with alarming numbers of boarding arrangements either wrongly rigged or poorly maintained, and these put the lives of pilots in serious danger. In the case highlighted by AMSA, what happened was what appeared to be a non-compliant pilot ladder in an inspection actually turned out to have been counterfeit, and it came with fake certificates as well. So that's right, a company in China had fortunately copied ladders from another company, Qingdao Good Brother Marine Life Saving Appliance, and sold them to unsuspecting shipowners who thought they were buying the real certified product. Legal action has since been taken in China by the original manufacturer. It's an unusual case, but also an alarming one, that equipment designed for safety is being fraudulently manufactured, and therefore might also not be that safe. More widely on that topic of pilot ladder safety, if you're interested in it, I'd recommend you check out Dutch marine pilot Ari Palmers on LinkedIn, who does a fantastic job highlighting both safe and unsafe boarding arrangements. And he's got something like 18,000 followers on there, which is quite amazing, but you give what a niche topic it is. It's weirdly interesting, though. This story sent me down a rabbit hole where I was looking through various sort of charity and safety notices about pilot ladders. <laughs> 
It's actually a really interesting topic. It was something that first came up to me about six, seven years ago in a conference presentation. I was like, wow. And it was something like 20% of all boarding arrangements were unsafe. A really alarming number. Moving on to week two, Gary. Yes, and I'm picking up a piece here written by Paul Bartlett on the New Build Order Book. I found this one particularly interesting. I think as an industry, we've been accustomed to LNG being the only alternative fuel even close to a wide adoption. But figures from DNV suggest this could be about to change. According to DNV's Alternative Fuels Insight platform, there were 138 methanol projects on order, including retrofits, compared to just 130 for LNG. Now, LNG obviously has a larger established base of vessels operating on LNG, but this figure perhaps reflects a falling confidence in LNG as the zero emissions solution for the future. Container ships leading the charge for methanol, as you'd expect, as a containerized place their bets on future fuels. DNV said that it showed methanol had gone mainstream, and that does seem to be the case, although these figures all pale in comparison to vessels running on you know, bog-standard fossil fuel oils. And a couple more disclaimers I think we should throw in here. The vessels on order will be dual fuel, and therefore capable, if not likely, running on fuel oil to start off with. And there are those various flavours of methanol out there with a range of green credentials. A methanol-capable vessel on order is still a few steps away from a vessel running solely on green methanol. Marcus? Yes, indeed. Although the first large container ship by Maersk, fueled by green methanol, has been launched this month, and they are going through a lot of steps to try and get that supply of fuel. And when you think there's another 130-odd ships from various people to come, well, it becomes quite an interesting question. I'm now going to go back to the Red Sea situation, but this time looking specifically at the container shipping sector, the sector that's been most impacted by the Houthi attacks. Unlike dry bulk and tankers, where the decisions to divert around the Cape of Good Hope are often not decided by the ship owners themselves, but actually the charterers, container lines are able to make their own decision on whether to make a diversion, adding somewhere between 10 days and two weeks to a transit between Asia and Europe and Med. As a result of that, around two thirds of container ships that usually transit the Red Sea and the Suez Canal have diverted via the Cape of Good Hope. Obviously, this creates disruption to fixed-day sailing schedules and requires a significant amount of additional tonnage. On the flip side of this, on the customer side, shippers have become particularly sensitive to these types of disruptions following COVID and events such as the Ever Given blocking the Suez Canal in 2021. The result is that spot rates from Asia to Europe and Asian Med have shot up dramatically. The benchmark Shanghai Containerized Freight Index ramped up some 126% from mid-November, only slipping by ever so slightly at the end of January. But the increases were particularly sharp in the final week of 2023 and the first week of 2024, which is why I'm choosing to highlight this here. They surged as much as 60% over that two-week period. These increases outstrip the cost of diversions, according to analyst MSI. And they say it points to a fear factor for the reason behind the dramatic rise in spot rates. Even as spot rates level out, there doesn't really appear to be a, like, a short-term solution to what is happening in the Red Sea. And the question will be now, how much of these higher rates will feed into contract rate negotiations, which will be very important for the profitability, or not, of container lines that had been facing a lengthy period of overcapacity. It's a story we'll be continuing to follow on ctrade-maritime.com, so make sure you are signed up to our newsletter. 
If you're enjoying the Sea Trade Maritime podcast, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing on the app of your choice. to week three i remember publishing this story and then immediately thought i'd made a mistake and picked up the same story as our china correspondent catherine c but instead we had covered covered two different sets of statistics with very similar conclusions and that is that china's shipbuilding industry is doing very very well i picked up some data from clarkson's research which showed china accounting for over half of shipyard output for the first time in 2023 beating south korea at 26 percent and japan at 14 percent China took the top spot for tankers, for bulkers, and for box ships, while South Korea led in LNG carriers, which, let's face it, isn't a bad business to be in right now. But the Clarkson figures also showed marked consolidation, over half of orders by tonnage having some alternative fuel capability, and a jump in orders by Greek shipowners of about 60% on year to $18 billion worth. Despite all these sort of positive indicators of activity, Clarkson stressed that the underlying need for fleet renewal was still there. Regulatory uncertainty is still there to some extent. There's still the pressure to decarbonize without a clear sort of front runner technology and fuel infrastructure for the future. And investment decisions are still quite difficult for ship owners to make. Check out Catherine's piece for more details on the China shipbuilding stats from the Ministry of Information and Technology in China. The title of that piece is China Cement's Position as World's Top Shipbuilder in 2023. Over to you, Marcus. Okay, and for week three, I'm going to stay with container shipping, but this time with the topic of alliances. When Maersk and MSC announced the split of the 2ML alliance in early 2023 with a final determination in early 2025, it created a question mark over how carriers would line up in the future. MSC made it clear it planned to go alone, and it has the scale to do so. But for the far less aggressively expansionist Maersk, the situation was somewhat less clear, really. And they managed to keep this one remarkably well under wraps. There wasn't even a hint of a rumour beforehand. But in mid-January, Maersk and Hapag Lloyd announced the formation of the Gemini Cooperation from 2025. Their plans, the impact of the new alliance and reaction was covered in depth by our correspondent Nick Cerides, and there are links to those stories in the show notes, but I'm just going to give you a few highlights. It will be a two-member alliance. Gemini means twin, so consensus is that that does not leave room for other members. Which from Maersk and Hapag is Castor and Pollux from the Constellation, I will leave that to you to decide. I must say I do like the name though, which is much more creative than the rather highly uninspired the Alliance. Gemini will cover seven trades. The two lines plan to utilize key hubs where they have terminal interests, reducing the number of port calls. They have set an ambitious target for schedule reliability of 90%, a number neither line is anywhere near at the moment, so it's going to be interesting how they get there. It puts a major question mark over the future of the Alliance, with Hapag Lloyd leaving. Does this kick off a major reshuffling of the Alliances? Or do they bring in another smaller member, such as Wernhai Lines? There are still plenty of questions to be answered, and developments will be watched keenly, including by ourselves. I'll take us into week four. When I exiled myself to the desert and the dark side last year, I learned a fair bit about maritime education. 
including around Ockhamp's SIA 2.0 rollout, which I found interesting. For those not studying maritime inspections as a hobby, SIA is the Ship Inspection Report Program run by Oil Companies International Marine Forum, Ockhamp, which is essentially the association for oil company involvement in tanker shipping. Ockhamp basically sets the standards for tanker shipping and SIA is its inspection program. And they're in the process of updating that to a new 2.0 version. A recent move into phase three of its rollout means that all SIA users can now carry out beta testing of the regime to get familiar with the system and find out any issues that they come across. SIA 2.0 is kind of cutting out paperwork. There's a new set of questions from which there'll be specific questions pulled that are relevant to the ship that's being inspected and it'll all be filled out on a lovely shiny tablet computer. And there's sort of focus on the human element in shipping. Occam keen to try and get down that particular risk factor in accidents and incidents through uh, assessment interviews with crew members. Uh, I picked out this topic as I find it interesting when learning about the changes to the program, but also for its potential impact on other inspection regimes. We do love an inspection here in the maritime industry, and it'll be interesting to see if the updates to SIA will bring change elsewhere. Thanks to Paul Bartlett for picking up that story, and I'll be watching these last phases of the SIA rollout with interest to see how it all goes. It is an interesting topic, but I was just thinking to myself, I wonder if we'd done a poll listeners at the start of this episode, and say like, what stories do you expect us to cover? Whether anybody would have chosen SIA 2.0 and fake pilot burners. <laughs> You've got to find your niches in this. What, what interests you? You've got to just chase it. No, definitely. And I think that's one of the things that makes this great fun to do. Coming to week four for myself, in week three, Gary reported on Chinese shipbuilding doing rather well. But it's fair to say that they, as well as the Korean and Japanese yards, have not been making much money out of the VLCC owners of late. The VLCC order book stands at a near historical low of just 23 vessels. That's about 2.6% of the existing fleet in tonnage terms. There is just one VLCC due to be delivered this year, and it's actually already happened. It was to AET, the Eagle Veracruz, which coincidentally took the Singapore registry of ships to over 100 million gross tons, so quite a milestone for that particular registry. Looking at those order book numbers, they do do a lot to help the health of the VLCC market. And until now, the rush of orders that might be expected in such a market has not transpired. There are reasons for this. There's a lack of available slots at yards who have favoured higher value LNG and container ship new buildings for those large dock spaces. There's an uncertainty over future fuels, both to power the ship and in terms of actual long-term demand for VLCCs which carry crude oil in a world that is looking to decarbonise. And then on top of that, you have a lack of willingness by some of the banks to finance such new builds given the sustainability targets they now have for their loan portfolios. That all being said, brokers potent believe new build VLCC orders will return in the second half of this year, as you aren't see lower numbers of contracts for LNG and container tonnage and look to fill up those berths. As a result, potent said it expects the VLCC order book to double this year. It is worth noting though, in terms of impact on the market, that will take several years for those new orders placed in 2024 to impact on the demand supply balance for VLCCs is good news if you're a VLCC owner. And Gary, over to you for the last week of the month. 
Yeah, the last few days that make up week five of January. Last but not least, Barry Parker had some sort of late January insights on the goings-on in Wall Street with a piece on a takeover offer for Overseas Shipholding Group, better known to many as OSG. Saltchuck Resources offer values the company at $450 million, and it's the second time the company's shown interest in OSG. There were some discussions in 2021 which never quite came together into a deal or an offer. Barry pulls together some interesting background on how investors view the listed Jones Act companies and some people seeing the sort of long investment cycles and short economic cycles of shipping as more suited to private ownership. OSG was clearly overcome by the offer, confirming its receipt and stating, the company does not intend to comment further on the unsolicited indication of interest or any related matters until its board of directors has determined that the disclosure is necessary or appropriate. On that romantic note, I'll head back over to Marcus for the outro. (laughs) We might not be seeing that one decided by Valentine's Day then. Yeah. Uh, okay, I'm going to have a slightly more serious note to take out the, the month. I'm going to bookend this episode with events in the Red Sea. As Gary noted at the start of the episode, Operation Prosperity Guardian, which from the middle of the month has included targeted strikes by the US and UK navies supported by their allies on Houthi positions, has not deterred the attacks. Since the strikes were launched, we have seen a growing number of both successful and failed attacks on US and UK-owned vessels in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. Bulkers from both Genco Shipping and Trading and Eagle Bulk, both US companies, have been hit by missiles in recent weeks. Hitting the global headlines last weekend was the strike on UK-owned tanker Marlin Luanda, chartered by Trading House Trafigura. The strike caused a fire in the cargo hold of the tanker, which was carrying a cargo of naphtha. Now that could have been really serious. Navy vessels from India, France and the US came to their aid and the fire was extinguished. Unfortunately, there were no injuries to the crew. Photos and video posted by the Indian Navy online show the extent of the fire and damage to the vessel. This and other pictures that the Indian Navy posted of the attack on the Jenko Picardi underscore how lucky we have been that these attacks have not been much more serious so far in terms of their consequences. Whether the threat will deter charterers from routing their vessels that they charter via the Red Sea and Suez, or make insurers react further, remains to be seen. But for now, unfortunately, it does look likely attacks will continue on merchant shipping, putting the lives of innocent seafarers at grave risk. We are sure to have more on this story in the next episode of Maritime Minutes at the beginning of March. Thank you for listening and make sure you check out seatrade-maritime.com to stay up to date with what is happening in the world of shipping.